listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. sometimes just feel the weight of sin, the, the weight of anguish, of darkness around us. Do you ever feel that? Somebody said yes. Do you, do, do you feel that even inside of your bones? Just the pull, the desire. Paul says, I don't do the things I want to do and I do the things that I don't want to do. And so we could look inside of us, but as we consider humanity, we understand that we are just broken, sinful folks, and we look all around us, and it's so prevalent all around us. When we look at Christ, we're going to see this morning, like David just read, we know all throughout the book of Luke as we've been walking through, and we've got today and then two more Sundays, and we're done with the book of Luke, and it's been awesome. And we've seen some really encouraging parts of Christ's character. I know even the past couple of weeks as we've looked at him coming out of the Last Supper with his disciples, going and being arrested. We've seen his character and nature on full display, his mercy and his grace for sinners like us. The way that he looked at Peter, the way that he caught eyes with Judas, and we're like, man, what great compassion he has for us. This morning as we look at Christ, we're going to see that he was prophet, priest, and king perfectly fulfilled. But this morning in the passage, we see a prophet whose mouth was closed. He did not respond to accusations. We see a priest who became the sacrificial lamb, even during this week of Passover. And we see a king robed with a crown of thorns on his head and mocked. We see on full display in this passage this morning the depravity of sin, the waywardness of humanity on full display. And I'm going to plead with you this morning that we can't just appreciate who Jesus is and what he has done, but we see the response of five individuals in this passage this morning, five persons of interest. And I want us to see as we walk away that this is Friday morning, this passage, as this happens we see, I think, in verse number 66, as the day started, as the new day began, this is Friday morning. And so as we look at this day, we see the darkness of sin, of God's wrath, of depravity of humanity that we can so often identify with. But friends, while it's Friday, we can look forward and we know that Sunday is coming. We know Sunday is coming when Christ is going to reign and to rule victorious for all time. But still today, he demands an answer. So which one of these folks do you identify with? And we're going to begin actually in chapter 22. So if you're like, man, why have we, have, have we skipped around some of these passages? Uh, we looked a couple weeks ago at Peter, at his failure and Christ's faithfulness. And then last week we saw Judas. We saw his betrayal of Jesus and what, that, what happened to Christ as he's being arrested. So today we're picking up there at the end of chapter 22 in verse number 63. And we see now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy. 
In other words, we know you're a prophet. You said you have a prophet. Now, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Literally, that means speaking against his person. As they beat him, okay, who was it that hit you? If you're so smart, Jesus, the Christ, I, I would, what a horrible day it's going to be when these men stand before Jesus. And he says, I know it was you who hit me. I knew it then, I, knew, I know it now. What a terrible, terrible day as we see just this depravity. So when his arrest happened, just a couple hours before this, immediately the abuse begins for Christ. And we see in verse number 66, if we keep going there, when day came. So this is Friday morning. So all of Thursday night included the Last Supper, Christ with his disciples celebrating the Passover. It included uh, Jesus and the disciples going to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's arrested there. It's, it includes Judas's kiss. It includes Peter's denial. And actually right here in between chapters 22 and 23, we see this is when Judas goes and commits suicide. We see that from other gospel accounts. So Thursday night is packed full of stuff. Friday morning happens, and we see the trial beginning. The assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. These are the last hours of Jesus' life before he is put on the cross. The last hours. I want us to see that the way that Christ is put on the cross is through lies, is through hatred, is through contempt, is through betrayal. Jesus did not deserve to die. If you've been in church for more than about five minutes, you probably know that. You understand that. But we see here the treatment of Christ and the natural ways that we often, even today, respond to Christ and to his sacrifice, to his character and to his nature. So we begin here with these lies. And the first person of interest that I want us to see are the chief priests. So we have here in verse number 66, we have the first person of interest of the chief priest. These represent the religious folks. The religious opposed Jesus because they were so proud. We've seen them all throughout the book of Luke. These are the Pharisees, Sadducees. They come together because they don't appreciate that Christ is saying, my kingdom is going to be one of humility. My kingdom is not going to be one where you get to rule and reign here on this earth. It's going to be fantastic. He says, no, come and humble yourself. Now, religious folks, them and us. So maybe you're like, oh, I don't know if that's me or not. Religious folks say this. They know all of the right things to say. They know all of the right songs to sing. They know all of the right phrases. They know what to do. They know what not to do. But the problem is they don't understand the depths of their sin. If I can just fix this, if I can just do it, I don't need Jesus. I don't actually need to be humble. I can do this, and who gets the reward? I do. Man, I can't believe you overcame that. Ah, well, that's just who I am. I'm just kind of awesome that way. These are religious people. I'm so proud. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, about 150 years ago, he said, every sin is in its essence a killing of God. Every sin in its essence is a killing of God. Even the smallest sin, friends. We begin with small sins and we slowly move into bigger ones and bigger ones. But even the smallest, the slightest sin requires and demands the wrath of God. 
And like David said a minute ago, we don't understand that God's wrath was being held up, that God is furious against sinners. Let me just deal with this. Let me just overcome this on my own. Look at how good I can be. No. Even these, uh, these most religious folks, they knew the scriptures better than anyone. And what are they doing here? They're standing in judgment of the creator God. So all the right answers, memorizing all the right Bible verses, singing all the right songs, it's not going to be enough to get you into heaven. Especially here in the Bible Belt. We think that the the difficult task of evangelism is in getting someone saved. But can I tell you that even more difficult than getting someone saved is getting them lost. Because we don't think we have a need for a savior. If I don't need Jesus, if, if there's no bad news in my life, then I don't need any good news. How ironic that the most religious folks are sitting in judgment of Jesus. If you look at verse number 70, their concern is not just with Jesus saying, hey, I'm the Messiah, but their concern is primarily with Jesus claiming identity with God the Father, claiming deity as being one with the Father. Look at verse number 70. So they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say, right there in the Greek, there's just two words that are there. It literally means you say, That's, those are your words. And why did he not respond? Because they're not going to believe him anyway. They haven't believed him for the last three and a half years. They know all of the Old Testament scriptures way better than me and you, friends. And they still don't recognize Jesus because the Spirit of God has not moved on their lives. They're too proud to recognize their sin. They're too proud to recognize the depth of their depravity. So in verse number 71, they have to begin telling lies because they want Jesus to be killed. Verse 71, then they said, What further testimony do you need? We have heard it from his own lips. Is that true? Did he say, I am God? No, no, no. He said, that's what you say. And they said, we heard it from his own lips. Again, lies. Jesus never said that. That's how Jesus is convicted and condemned. And we saw back in chapter 9 and verse number 20. Remember Jesus, he goes to his disciples and he says, some folks say I'm Elijah, so some folks say I'm, uh, I'm a prophet, I'm Moses, I'm John the Baptist. He says, who do you say that I am? That is the question that each of us must answer this morning. Who do you say that I am? Not who do your parents say that you, that you are. What do your parents say about Jesus? Not what, what does this simply mean? Okay, I, I realize this is true. Okay, the Bible says it's true. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he God or is he not? Do you need a sacrifice or do you not? Can you take care of it yourself? Christ is here demanding an answer from us. We must decide who we say that Jesus is. And ultimately, even though Jesus is here being judged, one day he is going to judge. He is the eternal judge. When he comes back to rule and to reign, it will at that minute be too late to say, oh, okay, 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 uh, I, I, uh, I want to confess my sin. Every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. But if you wait until that moment, your soul will no longer be safe. So while you have today, who do you say that Jesus is? The second person of interest that we see here is Pilate. 
And so the Jews could not, in their own power, execute anyone. And so they needed the Roman government to help execute Jesus. And so it says here at the beginning, we transition into chapter 23, and right there in between those two chapters, as soon as Judas, and we see this in other gospel accounts, as soon as Judas sees that Jesus is going to be condemned by the religious leaders, Judas gets incredibly sad. He goes out, he weeps bitterly, and he hangs himself. We see that in other gospel accounts. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. He says, then the whole, 23 verse number one, then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. Notice what Pilate says in verse number three. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He looks at Jesus, bruised already, beaten, bloody. He says, you're the king of the Jews? That, this guy? You couldn't find anybody else, anybody who looked any better, anybody who was a little bit taller, anybody whose beard was more neatly groomed. You couldn't find anybody else. We got this guy. You say you're the king of the Jews? Notice Christ's response. By the way, these are the only two words that we see from here until Christ is on the cross. He's not going to speak anymore else in our passage for this morning. What does Jesus say to him? Verse, in verse 3, and he answered him. Again, same two words. You say... You have said so. You don't even know what you're saying, Pilate. You don't even know what you're saying, chief priest. You're saying it, but you don't understand the weight and the depth and the gravity of who I am. You simply know about me. You don't know me personally. You say that I am. Now, Pilate, he's already in hot water with Rome. And we know this historically. Eusebius actually writes about this. Shortly after this trial happens, Pilate is actually, and nobody really wanted to be the Roman ruler of Jerusalem because there were so many Jews there. They didn't love the Roman government. And so shortly after this, Pilate is sent to Gaul, to this, uh, to this island, uh, because he wasn't doing a good job leading. And he goes there, and he shortly thereafter commits suicide. He, he was in a tough spot. And here's why, because Pilate's number one goal at this moment in his life is just to keep the peace. He's like, man, can we, can we all just get along? Can we just be nice to each other? Are you really the king of the Jews? He says he's not, guys. Can we just, okay, next, next case. I don't want to deal with this. And that's because Pilate is mainly concerned with the betterment of his life. So he looks at Jesus. Can Jesus make my life any better? Or is he going to make my life more difficult? And I wonder for how many of us are like Pilate, the preoccupied. I'm concerned with my kingdom, with my kids, with my job, my success, my house, my career, my 401, my retirement, my corporate ladder. I'm so concerned with these things. And we look at Jesus. Is he going to make my life any better? I'm preoccupied with all of these things. This is where my attention is going. Jesus, are you going to make my life any better? And he looks at you and he says, you say, that's what you think about me. I know for me, and you can do this, listen to your own prayer request. What are you praying for? Are you praying for the kingdom of God to be made known in this city, in your life? Are you praying for greater sacrifice and humility? Or are you praying that Jesus would bless your goals? Are you praying that Jesus would bless your life? Are you praying for more stuff from Jesus? Or are you praying that you would look like Jesus? When was the last time you went to Jesus and you said, you know what, instead of asking you to make my life better, 
Jesus, what would my life look like if I was totally committed to you? What do you want my life to look like? I want to be obsessed and preoccupied with your kingdom. And then the way that I parent my kids, the way that I shepherd my wife, the way that, the, where I live, the job that I have, these are all guided toward kingdom objectives that are going to matter for all of eternity. Distraction will lead far more to hell than will disbelief. Distraction will lead far more to hell than disbelief. The problem with Pilate here is not that he rejected Jesus. The problem with Pilate is that he was indifferent toward Jesus. Jesus has to matter more than a few minutes or a couple of hours out of the week. If, if this is the beginning and end, listen carefully, friend. If this is the beginning and the end of your interaction with Jesus Christ each and every week, you may be like Pilate, preoccupied with the rest of life, hoping Jesus will step in and simply make your life better here and now. So in verse number four, we see G Pilate does not want to get in the middle of this. Pilate said to the chief priest, now if you notice, all throughout this passage, every time you see them or they, what Luke is referring to is the chief priest. So all throughout here, the chief priest is like, we got to find Jesus guilty because we're so religious, we got to kill the savior of the world. Ironic, I know. But every time it says them or they, the chief priest, the Sanhedrin, these 70, 70 of the most religious spiritual people in all of the land are leading Jesus around, beating him, mocking him, trying to get somebody to just kill him. So they, they go to Pilate first. Pilate's like, I'm, I'm not getting in the middle of this. Verse number five. But they were urgent. We see this word urgent several times in this passage, saying, he stirs up the people. Was, was Jesus doing that? No, more lies. He's teaching through all Judea and Galilee, even to this place. This is where the chief priests messed up. Because Pilate doesn't have jurisdiction over Galilee. So as soon as they say Galilee, Pilate goes, uh, excuse me? Uh, what did you just say? Verse number six, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And sure enough, Jesus was. He's like, oh, praise heavens. <laughs> because there's another guy named Pilate, our third person of interest. Pilate is the intrigued. He's intrigued. He says, please go to Herod and he'll take care of it. Okay, chief priest, I don't, I'll, I'm going to wash my hands now, metaphorically later, I'm going to do it literally. I'm, I'm washing my hands of the situation. Go to Herod. He'll sentence him to death. So we see Herod there in verse number seven. Sent to Herod, who himself was in Jerusalem at that time. Again, millions of folks there in the city. Big Passover feast happening. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him. This is Herod Antipas. His father was Herod the Great, who wanted Jesus killed when he was a, a little baby. So Joseph and Mary had to flee to Egypt. Remember that? He killed all the, all the kids less than two or three years old. This is Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas. Now, Herod Antipas, he had hooked up with his brother's wife, and he had seen her daughter dancing at this festival. It's this whole weird West Virginia kind of thing going on. And so he says, he says uh, man, I want to, uh, you know, uh, my brother's wife, you can have anything you want in the whole kingdom, up to half the kingdom. What do you want? And she says, you know what I want? John the Baptist's head on a platter. So John the Baptist was already in prison for preaching against Rome, preaching against the chief priest. And so John the Baptist, he gets his head chopped off and given here. So that's Herod Antipas, terrible dude. But even shortly after that, so for about the past year, 
Herod has been intrigued by Jesus. And even in chapter 9, we saw Herod says, wait, I killed John the Baptist, and we know Elijah has been dead for a few centuries, so who is this guy named Jesus? All these miracles he's working, and he's like, huh, I'm really intrigued by this guy. This is interesting. I want to meet this Jesus. We saw that about a year ago in Jesus' story. Well, here we have Jesus. Herod finally gets to see him. And what does he want to happen? Jesus, do some, do some parlor tricks for me. You know, you know any magic? Can we do some miracles? Can we turn some water into wine? Can we do something? Like, this just seems really awesome. Pilate's intrigue with Jesus led to him mocking Jesus. In the same way, our failure to surrender to Jesus will lead us to grieve the Holy Spirit. You either accept Christ on his terms and submit to him, or you will be begin being complacent toward your sin and toward his deity, furthering the gap between who you are in need of him and what he says that he can offer, which is life. You will either move toward Jesus or further away from him. You cannot simply be intrigued by Jesus and just keep him at kind of arm's length. But you know what? When I, when I get in my deathbed, then maybe I'll surrender. We don't know what that day is going to be. Maybe you're here this morning and you're intrigued with Jesus. But it's just kind of there. Maybe this morning you think, yeah, Herod, that's who I'm kind of like. And I don't know if the grace of Jesus is strong enough or if the merciful hand of God can reach far enough to pull me out of my sin and out of my shame. I don't know if it can go quite that far. And so you've grieved the Holy Spirit over and over, and you felt that pulling from him. Repent of your sin. Confess your sin. I don't want to. You continue to grieve the Holy Spirit. Can I tell you, friend, it may be too late if you continue to wait. You say, preacher, are you trying to, you trying to scare us? I don't want to scare you. But what scares me and what breaks my heart is that there will be souls who know so much about Jesus, but they will be eternally separated from him because they were preoccupied by the things of this world or they were simply intrigued about Jesus but they never ran to him. My concern is for your soul. And if you look here at verse number 11, this is beautiful. This is what Christ has done for us. This goes beyond intrigue. If you're looking for the part of this passage that touches the deepest need of your heart, it's in verse number 11. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt. And mocked him. Close your eyes for just a minute. Picture this. I'm going to continue reading this verse. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. They take him and they dress him in a robe, a robe of purple, because Jesus, oh, you're the king of the Jews. This is where they hand him a staff as a scepter. Oh, great king. They put a crown of thorns upon his head. We see in other gospel writings. Oh, you want to be a king? Here's your crown. This is the depth of Christ's love and compassion for his people. 
it's at this point here in the passage that we see the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So you don't just have to be intrigued with him, but you can be intimate with Jesus Christ. You can open your eyes if they're still closed. Beloved, this is the picture of Christ that should draw our hearts in and break them over our sin. We see here the love of Christ. We see that he alone is worthy of our allegiance. Jesus Christ alone, because of his sacrifice, is worthy of our trust. He is a compassionate Savior. We can run to him. No matter what you've done, he did this for you. So in verse number 13, we see here in these few verses that the chief priest's tactics have not worked. Verse 13, Pilate then called together the chief priests, and Pilate and Herod, they were enemies. They become friends because they both hated Jesus. And he called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. You had these lies. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Come on, guys. What else you got? Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Again, no truer words could be spoken. And Pilate had no idea. Verse 16. And I will therefore punish and release him. So here, Pilate says, you know what? Let's make a compromise. I'll punish him. I'm going to beat him, but then I'm going to release him. Is that good enough? We know that he's innocent. I, I can't find any reason to kill him. I don't want to get in the middle of this. I'm trying to keep Rome happy, trying to keep the Jews happy. This is Passover week. I don't really want this blood on my hands. Pilate's wife starts getting mad at him, we see. Then look at verse number 17. Everybody see 17 there? No, you don't. It goes from 16 to 18. Isn't that interesting? This is why you bring your Bibles to church, friends to see if it's really in there. <laughs> I'm just kidding. If you notice, verse 17 is missing. If you have uh, ESV, that's the elect standard version. If you, look at verse num- if you look at the little letter that's there, though, there's a little number one or a little L. My, my eyes aren't that good anymore. But it says this at the very bottom, okay? They added this, the writers or the, yeah, the, the translators. It says here or after verse 19, some manuscripts add verse 17, Now he was obliged to release one man to them at the festival, okay? We see this in other gospel writings. This is just one of those little fun Bible facts. Uh, But what we know is that during the feast of Passover, that the Roman leader here, in this case, Pilate, would release one prisoner. As a mark of grace and mercy, let's release one prisoner. So now we can pick up in verse number 18. So we know that 17 is not there. We look at verse number 18, though. Here we have person of interest number four, Barabbas, the guilty. If persons one, two, and three, if you're like, I don't think that's me. I'm not really intrigued. I actually have a relationship. I'm, I'm not really proud like the religious. I'm more humble. That's great. Uh, I'm not really preoccupied. I'm, I'm heading straight towards Christ's kingdom. All my life goes there. Fantastic. But just so you know, Barabbas, person number four, this is all of us. So if at some point Luke has missed you through these first three persons, he's got you here. This is Barabbas. This is all of us. But notice for a second, we're going to see this juxtaposition between Jesus and Barabbas. Jesus and Barabbas. 
So Pilate essentially goes before the people and says, I'm gonna give you one of two options. Who do you want, Jesus or Barabbas? Barabbas, we see here, he was a man, verse number 19, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city for murder. What city are they in? Jerusalem. Who primarily lives in Jerusalem? Jews. Barabbas was a domestic terrorist. This was about as bad as it got. He had gone around, his MO was killing as many Jews as possible. So Pilate says, you know what? This is an easy one, guys. This is, this is a softball. Like, I'm, actually, I'm gonna set it on the tee for you. Who do you want? Barabbas, this domestic terrorist who wants to rule and to reign by killing y'all? Or do you want Jesus, who no one can find any guilt with? You've lied about him. He's just like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't even need to defend myself. You're not gonna believe me anyway, and I've got no reason to defend myself. His kingdom is a kingdom of peace. It's not one of guns and war and power. His kingdom is one of humility and sacrifice and surrender. We see this juxtaposition here. Friends, the road to the throne for Jesus goes through the cross. We see the difference here between these two men. Verse number 20. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. He really wanted to. He wanted to be done with this guy. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. And a third time, what evil has this man done? I can find no guilt in this man where he deserves death. Again, they were, what's the word there? They were urgent. They wanted this done. They wanted Jesus dead demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. By the way, verse 23, we just, we just read it. But who is the they? The chief priests. Every single day or them are the chief priests, the most religious folks, the most church-going folks, the people who knew the scriptures better than anybody else. And their voices prevailed. I thought about going on a, a, a slight excursus, a little diatribe here about the voices of the culture, how they're prevailing right now. I don't have time for that, so we'll stick with Jesus. But just, under, just understand, no matter how loud the voices are in our culture, for whatever they're promoting, the will of God is what's going to stand. The word of God is going to stand true forever. We can stand upon that, no matter what the other voices say. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. Barabbas literally means son of a father. Bar means son, or it means of the house of, literally it means from the Old Testament, um, of the tent of. And then Abba, Abbas, means father. So this name is so generic. It means this guy had a dad. <laughs> like, what, what does your name mean? What is, what, I had a dad. Like, I exist. Cool. Do you have a middle name? <laughs> like, so literally, we have the son of a man standing here, and we have the son of God, and the people choose the son of a man. The people, the crowds, the most religious would rather have a murderer walking in their midst than Jesus Christ, the son of God, walking in their midst. So when we look at the crowds, and David mentioned, man, they're jacked up. Man, they're preoccupied. 
They don't understand the kingdom of Christ. The most religious folks who know the most about Jesus, they don't understand Jesus. They don't get it. Their hearts have not been changed. They're looking to Jesus to use him, to abuse him, so that they can live a better life here and now, so that they can feel better about themselves, so they don't have to deal with their sin. Imagine if you were Barabbas that day, and this is uh, probably not really him, but imagine if you're Barabbas, and you're sitting in a jail cell, knowing that you've killed tons of folks, you're a domestic terrorist, and you're sitting in your cell, and you begin to hear the chants of crucify him, crucify him, echoing through the corridors of the prison. You're thinking, they're coming to get me. This is my last day. Then the guard comes, and you're, you're sitting there in shackles. He says, all right, Brabus, time to go. His heart had to sink. I've only got a few moments of life left. He walks him out, and, the, and Barabbas sees Christ there. And the guard looks at Barabbas and all of his guilt and his shame and his fear, and he unlocks his shackles. He says, you can go free. The cries of crucify him were not for you, but it was for someone else. And Barabbas begins to ask questions. He's like, what? <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, like, is it, this is like a reverse stolen identity. Nobody wants to steal my identity. I'm guilty. Why are they killing him? Why do I get to go free? And people are just like, we don't know. Well, what's the case against him? There's not one. We don't understand. And all Barabbas knows is that he has been set free. And the other man standing there is set to be murdered, set to be executed on his behalf. The only way that Barabbas can go free is because Jesus is being crucified. Barabbas has been chosen for life because Jesus has been chosen for death. In Romans chapter 5 and verses 7 and 8, it says that why would somebody die for a wicked man? Even for a righteous man, you're probably not going to die. But when you were yet, what? Working on yourselves? A little bit bad? Maybe like a, a few things to kind of polish up. You were telling little white lies. You were trying to not look at those things online quite as much. You were doing your darndest to live for Jesus. You were giving a little bit of money to the church. You were showing up if you had nothing else to do. No. He says, when you deserve the wrath of God because you were sinners, at that point, Christ died for you. Jesus took the penalty that you deserve the wrath of God, separation from God, so that you could walk out, so that you could be free, so that you could experience life. Imagine the gratefulness that Barabbas had. Imagine the change of heart. We talk about how the name Barabbas is so generic. I think it's generic on purpose. 
because it represents me and you. We are the ones who stand guilty before God. We are the ones in need of Jesus' sacrifice. That's our fourth person of interest. But then I wanted to add verse number 26 in here. Real quick, if you look at the very end of verse 25, I think this is interesting. It it says, uh, he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Talking about the will of the crowd, talking about the will of the chief priests. They didn't even understand that their will came under the umbrella of God's will. This was the plan of God. We saw back in Isaiah chapter 53, we looked at it last week. We saw it in Psalm chapter 22. This is the Messiah who would come and who would remain silent. He was like a lamb who was led before his shearers. He didn't say a word. It's the will of God that Christ would be sacrificed. Then we see this, first, this fifth person of interest, and this is Simon the disciple. And as they led him away, verse 26, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Here's why I think this is important. When we look back at so far in Luke's gospel, and so many of the gospel accounts, what was the name of the little boy who gave up his, his fish and bread so that Jesus could have a miracle and feed thousands? What was his name? We don't know. Who was the name of the guy who had the colt uh, who Jesus was going to ride in on? What about the guy who owned the upper room so Jesus and his disciples could have the Last Supper together? We're picking up on this. We don't know. It's important that Luke puts this name in here because if you look at the end of Romans uh, 16, Paul actually has a list of folks there. He says, thank you for your help in the gospel. Thank you for your ministry. Thank you for your continued service. And he actually mentions Simon the Cyrene as the one that the Lord chose. It's the only person in Romans 16 that Paul says, he's the one that the Lord chose. He chose him. History would tell us that Simon was a leader in the early church there. He was important. When it seems like Christ is at his weakest, when he has a a crown of thorns on his head, he's beaten, he's bloodied, you can't even perceive that it's Jesus. He's beaten beyond recognition. Even then, Christ has the strength to choose and to call those who are going to follow him. Because of Christ's sacrifice, he has the power to redeem even the most filthy and guile sinner. He has the power to adopt. He has the power to save. He has the power to make you his own. Because he was robed. Because he was mocked. Because he was beaten. Because he was crucified. And I would implore you this morning, friend, to respond to that call. To receive that invitation into life. It wasn't with words that Jesus says, I'll I'll forgive you. It wasn't with words that Jesus said, I'm going to make sure that you have a way to heaven. And it's not simply with our words that we respond in faith to Jesus Christ. Our hearts must be changed. It requires surrender. So friend, humble yourself this morning. Christ did this for you. Christ did this for me. Run from the shadows of shame. 
Run from the shackles of sin. Look to Christ. Fall upon his mercy because while today is Friday, Sunday is coming. And he's going to restore. He is going to redeem. Whatever your story is, however your life has looked, he wants to redeem that and restore that. If you say, man, I have faith, I do. I would challenge you to examine your heart. Is it a faithfulness that is produced by the Spirit? Or is it a faithfulness that you can do in and of your own power? We're going to celebrate through this meal that we call communion. Celebrating the finished work of Jesus Christ. Christ lived for us. He lived with us. He died for us. He was murdered for the very people that wanted him dead. It's pretty wild. His body was broken. His blood was poured out. And he didn't say a word when he was being accused of sin. He didn't open his mouth so that he could look at you and proclaim you forgiven. So that when he's standing before the Father one day and your soul is there, he opened out his mouth so that he could say, she's mine, he's mine, that one, they're mine. My mouth stayed closed so that he could declare you righteous. So now we get the opportunity to taste and see that he is good. It's not with our words, but with his finished work that we are saved. So run to him this morning. Place your faith in him. This meal is a reminder for us of what Christ has done. It's a chance for us to repent together as his people. And it's a chance for us to rejoice. We get to rejoice that Jesus was slaughtered so that we could be redeemed. We get to find joy in that, no matter what life looks like. No matter how dark the days are. Our joy, our hope, our freedom is found in Christ and in him alone. So friends, let's partake of this meal together, looking to Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. You're invited to join me.